Hope is the thing with feathers. Hope is the thing with feathers. That's like a bird. Like a bird. That perches in the soul. That perches in the soul. Welcome to the Thing with Feathers podcast, a podcast about birds and hope. I'm your host, birding enthusiast, Courtney Ellis. Welcome back to the Thing with Feathers podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Ellis. So delighted to have children's book author Annette Whipple with us today. She inspires wonder in young readers while exciting them about science and history. She has written 12 children's books, nonfiction, including one of my favorites, Who Knew the Truth About Owls with Ray Craft Books. She lives in a small town in Southeast Pennsylvania. Welcome, Annette. Yay. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. It is so good to be with you today. Thank you for taking the time and thank you for writing these books. You know, it's it, it's just become part of who I am to share that, to share this world with, with young readers. And it's it's an honor, really. So thank you. We especially, we love all of your, all of your children's books and our kids are working their way through your nature series. But since this is a birding podcast, we're going to start with your book about owls. Our middle child is not as much of a reader. He's more a give me my Legos. I want to play outside kind of a kid. But this book, I just had it on the kitchen table and he came across it organically and he was like, mommy, what is this? And he was captivated. So tell us how this book came about and how you find it connects with your young readers? Okay. So I, I was trying to, I knew that I wanted to write more for kids. And I had my first book idea, The Loringles Wilder Companion, a chapter by chapter guide. I had that idea, but it was on hold while waiting for rights and permissions and things like that. So I wanted to keep writing. What could I write about? What could I write about? And I actually just started writing about owls without thorough research initially, just based on my experience teaching about owls as an environmental educator. And I did this because I was attending a writing conference and I got to submit something to be critiqued. And so I had to take something with me. And so my, you know, that those early drafts, they didn't have the thorough research that the, that the published book did because I just needed to get my ideas down on paper. So really it began with that love of owls from my days of, as an environmental educator and teaching kids then. But even before that, my grandmother collected owl figurines at, when I was a girl. And I never quite understood how majestical they are until I learned more facts about them because before they were just a mystery. So it was like, yeah, I've never seen one in person. Like, yeah, they say who and what else did I know? I didn't know much. So it wasn't until I was an environmental educator and I, and in, in order to teach a class about owls and dissecting owl pellets, that was when I really did the research and the initial research just so that I could teach about it. But that's how the idea came about. Um, and then it was a long time coming even after that with, with some big revisions, um, 35 drafts 
35. It took a lot to make it right. Um, but it was, it was worth it. 35 drafts. I think that is such a, that's just such a testament to the tenacity that writing takes, that good (laughs) writing takes. I, I, my son had a friend over last week and I was sitting in this big pile of papers and he's like, Oh, you working on your book again? I said, yeah, I'm doing another revision. And he said, what number is this? And I said, I don't know, 15, 16. And there was a long pause and he goes, you must make a lot of typos. I was like, no, no. spell check catches the typos. This is like developmental editing, right? Making the ideas better. Absolutely. So when I, um, no teacher ever encouraged me as a writer because I was not a good writer. I, mm. I could write, um, but it, I was, there was nothing special about my writing. Um, but it wasn't until I began blogging when I was in my thirties and then after a couple of years blogging, I was like, I want to be a better writer. I know I've improved by blogging, but I took some writing classes. And that was when I really learned how to proofread beyond looking for those capital letters and typos and punctuation marks. Because before I was only editing, I wasn't revising for the big picture. I was not trying to be a better communicator, trying to really improve my words to help the reader understand what I am saying, um, you know, to get that point across. So it, 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 it takes a lot. It really does. But for, for who knew the truth about owls, when I, you know, the first 20 drafts, well, the, the first few drafts, we'll just say, especially that first draft garbage on paper, it is just ideas down on paper, nothing much more than that. And then, you know, through revisions, it gets better. But it took me a long time to lose my teacher voice and to figure out how to make this owl book. And these, I, I had all this information about owls. I want to include every awesome fact in my book. And I couldn't do that. And it took me 20 drafts to figure that out, that I needed to just completely change the structure. Um, and then I geared it for a little bit of a younger audience. And then that was when I also turned it into a question and answer book so that each page spread of this picture book would have uh, a big question and then an answer. And that was also when I had added the humorous sidebars where the animals talk. So it was, it really took that long, but I took about a two year break from, from the manuscript. So around that draft, around draft 20, I took a, that big long break. And it was during that time I was reading a ton of children's nonfiction books and just really s- studying them, trying to figure out what is it that makes these books stand out? And so much of it is the structure um, it, for picture books anyway. So much is the structure. But I also no- noticed, you know, my kids love humor. And I'm not a funny person. I know that. But, um, and yeah, so so that's why instead of through my words as in the main text of the book, instead of trying to add humor there and maybe forcing it, that's where I had the animals add the humor as they, you know, share more facts with us. The book is full of little owl comedians and it's (laughs) great. It's brilliant to have it be in the owl's voice. If you're not a natural comedian to have the owls be funny and these books, and it's true of your owl book, but it's also, there's a book on dogs, on cats, on spiders, on frogs, and there's one coming out on sharks, which I'm very excited about as a Southern California resident, but they, they draw kids in with this posture of discovery and curiosity. And, and I love how you put it that you had to kind of lose your teacher voice because people know when they're being preached at or lectured 
structured too. And kids hate that, but they Mm -hmm. love discovering and being invited into curiosity. And that is so much of the world of birding. Look at this. Do you want to see it too? Oh, this is cool. What do you notice? So how do you write a good children's nonfiction book? How do you think about drawing your readers in? What are your, what are your tips and tricks? Oh boy. Um, I guess one important thing that I like to think about is, you know, if, if I was talking to my own child, if I was talking to my neighbor, if I was teaching a class, if I was presenting about this topic, what would I actually say Hmm. to that seven-year-old, to that 12-year-old, you know, thinking about who my audience really is, envisioning them as a person, and then how would I talk to them about that? Mm -hmm. And now that also means, you know, in some of my writing, it is a less formal voice. Um, that's, and I am, I'm not a very formal person. Um, <laughs> and that's okay. Now, some children's writing doesn't need to be formal. Um, I've, I've had assignments where I was told I couldn't use conjunctions. I'm not, not conjunctions, contractions. And, oh, okay. And it took me, I had, I had to actually go back and revise. <laughs> and, you know, I had to edit my work because naturally I'm using those contractions. So, mm-hmm. um, but, so I, th- I think the big thing is to know who, who your audience is, know who they are in the sense of, you know, what, what they respond to. Mm-hmm. And really, kids are curious. And so it helps us. If so as a nonfiction writer, it helps me to be curious to think about all those questions I have about this topic. Hey, I don't need to know all the answers to begin with. That's I, I learned through research. And so it can work. It can work. And I love writing for kids. They are just, they are so eager to learn. And, and it's, and it's just, it's just a blessing to me to be able to open up this world a little bit more for a reader, for a young reader, especially. Mm. And I know you, you've shared with me that you are a person of faith. These are not explicitly Christian books. I know you have one coming out, Quirky Critter Devotions with Tyndale, which I'm really excited about because I love quirky critters and I love <laughs> well-done devotions for kids are often hard to find. How does your faith connect with your practices of curiosity? How are those things tied together? Oh, that is a good and interesting question. So I think... You know, God, God has revealed himself to us through his word, but his word is long and it is deep and it is not, I mean, there are so many different levels of understanding. We can look at that surface level, but as we mature in our faith, we, we want to get to know him more and we want to, we want to understand him and what his purpose is for us. And, and it takes curiosity to do that. And it takes curiosity to, to, be in this world and to just, you know, I mean, we, we can, anyone can look at a sunset and say, wow. Mm. But when we are intentional as, with, as a person of faith to step out in this world and look for God's magnificent creation, I think it makes a difference. I think it makes a difference in how we respond to God, mm. but also how we respond to others. And even if it's just that whole, Oh, wow. Look what I just learned. Did you see that? That's amazing. So it's, it can be those little things, but it can also be those bigger things of, of really getting to know our, our Savior, our Heavenly Father Hmm. at a deeper level. Hmm. I 
spoke with uh, Paul Wallace, who's a professor of physics and astronomy, early on the podcast. I think he was on episode two. And he talked about how bird watching is one of the most profound spiritual practices he does. And he's served as a pastor. He's a Christian. He said, but there's something about going out in nature and that wonder and the way it kind of opens up your soul and, and brings you to that place of, wow, like God could have created a bland, sterile, gray world and he didn't. And there's a reason for that. Yeah, that's right. And it's, you know, it has... The as I'm researching about various animals, it's you know we don't we don't know all of the animals out there, and it's just one part of his creation. Um, but you know another um, another hundred ish, most recently more than a hundred frog species have been discovered every year, not just amphibian, but frog species. And, and, you know, scientists are learning more about them as they are able to go in and, and research and in, in the home environments of these critters. And, you know, just hearing that it's, it's, it's amazing. When I was, when I was working on the frog book, and we're not talking about frogs, but when I was working on the frog, bring it book, on, bring on the frogs. <laughs> when, I was, it. when I was researching, you know, I, I'm taking notes and I wrote down the number of species and I was, uh, and I actually had written down the date and I don't usually do that with my research. I don't usually date, you know, this note was taken on this date, but in the few months that I was researching and writing, whoa, so many changes with those numbers. And so now that's something fun for me to share with, oh, that, that figure is old and look at all the, all the new frogs that we have now. So yeah. That's astonishing. That's really, I mean, to, to think about a hundred new species of frogs every year. That's yeah. that's amazing. I grew up in Wisconsin thinking there was one species of hummingbird. We had ruby-throated hummingbirds, period, full stop. And then we moved <laughs> to California and I start getting interested in birding and I'm looking around. I'm like, wait a second, that one's different than that one. And I, re- and I do a little research and we have eight species of hummingbirds in our area. And, wow. and that's, I didn't know there were, we don't have the ruby-throateds. We don't get those out here, but eight different, like the biodiversity and the creativity mm-hmm. in the natural world. And the more you peel back layers, the more layers you find. It's a bottomless bowl. What a delight. Yes. And one thing with birds that's pretty amazing too is how different the male and females are. And, and you know, not always, but but sometimes, and but even, even a six-year-old, even probably a, you know, a three-year-old can spot that cardinal. And I, I know that uh, cardinals aren't for you, but, but they're here in Pennsylvania. And, I love them. We just don't have them. <laughs> but, you know, that you learn that it's such a distinct bird that a young child can understand that shape is the cardinal, but oh, that bright red one is the male. Oh, there's a little bit of red, but it's mostly brown. That's the female. Oh. And it's just, you know, just living in that awe and wonder. It's a great place to be. It really, really is. Our our four-year-old daughter is, we have we have two boys and a girl, 10, 7, and 4, and our four-year-old is our daughter, and she is all about the sparkle and the bling, and the, I'm a tomboy, so she's not getting this from me. <laughs> uh, you know, I wear earth tones and whatever, but she... She would like to go out of the house with all the accessories on. And she is very bothered because she has picked up on this between the male and the female of the species that the females tend to be the ones that are more muted and more drab. And we saw a peacock recently at the zoo and she was like, well, that must be the girl. And I was like, oh, sweetie, I'm sorry. And she's like, that is not fair, mommy. It's like, well, you can you can be the peacock in our family. You can be the male. Female. And that just means that the, the females get to choose 
you know, who, who, who's showing it off the bre- the best, the brightest. Totally. Um, totally. But she's picked up on it already. You know, yeah. she notices these, these differences and it's really fun to watch those little parts of my children's brains start to light up. And your books have been a part of that in our family. And I'm really, really mm-hmm. grateful for that. I know they are, they are written by a person of faith and they are not from a faith-based perspective, but your love of creation shines through in these pages in a way that I think glorifies God very, very deeply, even though there's not an altar call between pages five and six. <laughs> yeah, we, so, so far, all of my books have been for the general market. Um, you know, general history, general um, science, lots of animals, and they're for everyone. Hmm. And they're still written through my worldview. And so um, sometimes that shines, sometimes it's it's more subtle. But I did have someone ask me, are you a Christian who did not know me, but based on my writing, which really took me by surprise. Hmm. Um, and it also delights me to to think that somebody connected with me, not knowing but willing to ask as well. Mm. So yeah, um, and and then there are other times that you know what I'm writing is for that faith filled or maybe just a faith based family. You know, maybe mm. it's not, maybe the child's not faith filled yet, but we're going to get there one day. I hope so, um, but glorifying God through, through my writing, you know, that's through whatever we do, that should be the goal. And whether I'm writing for that, for a Christian audience or a general audience, either way, I'm still writing with God in mind and to glorify him. Hmm. So that's, that's, that's beauti- beautifully stated. I One of my goals for this podcast is it's a podcast about birds and hope. And about half of my guests are people of faith. They're Christians or they're Jewish or, or they bring another faith to the table. And half of them are not, or they don't want to talk about that part of their life, which is perfectly fine. Because I think talking about birds is is one of the ways we honor God in whatever way we choose to. So I think there is there is something to that that casting that broader net and being a voice of encouragement to a broader audience that, that does honor and glorify God. And I'm, I'm always so honored when people say, you know, I'm an atheist, but I'll come on your podcast because I think birds and hope are, that's a good project. We can agree on birds and hope. Birds and hope are the great unifiers. And I think I'm honored by them sharing their voices and their stories with us. Absolutely. That's, um, and it shows a little bit about you, and your voice and your respect of others. And that's, you know, glorifying to God too. It all is. Birds and hope. Birds and hope. <laughs> so Annette, tell me a little bit about your personal birding life there in Pennsylvania. What are you seeing? This podcast is going to air in the, in the midsummer. What do you see in Pennsylvania in the summer in the birding world? Oh, first... You should know. And I think I actually t- shared this with you when, when we were first talking online. I am not an expert. I am not a, a full-blown a full blown birder. I have bird feeders in the backyard. but um, We don't take attendance. The bar is low. <laughs> if you look out your window and you see a bird and it brings you joy, you're a, you're a birder. Yay. Um, so, you know, in, in the backyard right now, we've, we have lots of sparrows. And I don't know the difference between all of them. (laughs) 
Have you heard that birders like to call sparrows LBJs? It's a little brown job. There's a lot of, you know, you're like, I don't know. Unless you get really close, it's sometimes hard to tell. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I have, we have some woodpeckers, some cardinals, lots of sparrows and finches, um, a lot of blackbirds. Um, hmm. my, my peanuts are disappearing out of the bird feeders very quickly. Thank you to the blackbirds. But, um, but they, they need to eat too. They've got babies to feed, you know, sure. so it works. Um, so, so my two feeders in the backyard, that's where I see most of my birds. Sometimes I do sit outside and just kind of sit back and watch. Um, a couple of years ago, we did get binoculars. Um, they were a gift for my husband for Father's Day. However, that he did get them just a couple of weeks after my first time out with a group um, bird watching because I had to borrow, I, I had taken a pair of little tiny binoculars and they were like, here, <laughs> let us, you know, you can borrow these hefty ones that will actually do something for you. You will have and, a better time yeah. with a better set of binoculars. Yeah. Yes. So, um, so I, I don't have much experience birding. I don't know all the different species. I know a handful more than my kids do, but yeah, but they still, they, despite the lack of knowledge, and that's really just on me. I mean, I could, I could really study them so much more, but, um, um, you know, listening to different calls. Do you know that you know the Merlin app? I'm sure. I I hope your listeners know the Merlin app because it's amazing. You don't have to know what you're looking at or what you're hearing, and you can use this Merlin app. And I think it's from the Cornell, um, from Cornell University. Um, but it will tell you what you are likely hearing or what you are likely seeing if it's a good photo. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that that helps me too. But yeah. Resources are good. And it's a great tool with kids too. And there's no, you know, it's the, from the Cornell lab of ornithology. Yes. So there are no in-app purchases or anything. So you can let your kids run wild with it and they're not going to run up a bill for you, but it's great for the kids to go hear a bird, listen to it, do the sound ID. And then the picture pops up and they're like, oh my goodness, it's a hooded Oriole. I didn't know. That's so fun. And then they can learn more about it. You know, that's, it's, but it's in this world of um, instant gratification, birding is not typically there's not much instant about birding mm -hmm. but that app really is it is so um but it can it, it can also be for me it can also be a really good thing because I can take that app and and use it with a guidebook at the same mm -hmm. time and to learn more to understand more to see more pictures or drawings and mm -hmm. yeah it all works together well, you're going light on your own bird knowledge and expertise, but your book on owls, I love owls. I'm a little owl obsessed. I have a bunch of books right now on my desk, just out of out of view, owl, Owls of the World from the Library. Um, and I've been researching them myself. But your book, your you know, 25-page owl picture book taught me things that I had not yet come across in my research. So you can wear the owl expert hat with pride. Yay. I love that. And you know, when I when I am writing, I do try to find things that that child enthusiast enthusiast won't know. Um, yeah. because there you don't want it to just be another book with the same old facts in it. It needs to have some fresh ideas. And, you know, I, I work with traditional publishers. And so I need to surprise the editor with some new things, too. It can't just be the same old thing. Um, and so I actually I was at an I was at a school this week. 
I'm not, no, it was last week. I'm not sure when it was. <laughs> you get around. <laughs> um, I don't know when it was. In the past few days, though, I was at a school and going, I have Wilbur, a stuffed animal. He's a, he's a great horned owl, um, a stuffed owl and stuffed animal owl. Got it. Check. <laughs> here, there. Um, I, um, but I be, as children are arriving, you know, when there's a couple hundred children sitting on the gym floor, it takes a long time to enter and to get settled. So as these kids are arriving, I, t- I take Wilbur around and I introduce the kids to Wilbur and introduce myself. And I'll ask, you know, do you have any questions before we get started? And, and uh, usually the schools prepare them so they know who I am. So that's not, so it's not too weird to them. But, you know, one of the kids was, how do owls turn their heads all the way around? And so I have to explain a little bit about that all the way around. But then it's also, you know, they have longer necks than us that you just can't tell. And but it's just those little things where it's because um, I, I do feel like sometimes we think we know things whether it's because we've been told something all of our lives, like, you know, owls are nocturnal. Well, not all of them are. And, um, you know, little things like that. And owls can turn their heads around. Well, yeah, they can turn their heads mostly around, but it's not full circle that we might think that it's, even though it appears to be in some photographs. So Mm -hmm. those little things, just trying to wow the reader with some, ooh, or um, like, you know, one, oh, fact, you know, some owls eat other owls. And it's, 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 it's kind of cool for the kids to hear it, but it also makes them say, Oh, <laughs> really? Right. My, my middle son was like, I didn't know owls were bad guys to other owls. And I was like, well, you know, it's not, not really being a bad guy, but let's talk about that. But that, that fact really struck him. And I will say as a parent, we try to read to our kids every night. Our oldest reads to himself now, you know, he's off doing his own thing, but we, we, have children's books we love and gravitate toward. And we have children's books that we're like, we're just going to pull this one out of the rotation because especially often the character branded ones where the kids want it because it's Paw Patrol or because it's PJ Masks, but there's no plot. I just am so appreciative of a book that doesn't just try to wow my kids, but also wows me. Like that, that is a gift as a parent to be able to curl up with something at the end of the night that I also enjoy. It's why Pixar films make it so great because they also punt to the parents here and there, but in ways that are child appropriate and your books do that so beautifully. So thank you for making our nighttime routine a little more pleasant on the parents. We, We appreciate that so much. Now, when you're reading them, when you're reading one of um, the Truth About books out loud, do you actually read the entire thing at once or do you read, um, being the question and answer format, you can really just take a page at a time if you choose to. How do you, how do you and your family read them? It depends on how much time we have before we actually need to shovel them into their beds. So if we have the time, we do like to go through the whole thing. And my daughter, especially my four-year-old, really wants us to point to which part of the page we're reading because she wants to connect it to the actual little cartoon or the picture or the because there is a lot of information on every page and she likes it to be kind of paired for her because she can't read yet. So yeah, it, it depends on the night. When I have the time, I really enjoy making it all the way through. Yay! <laughs> So what other children's books would you recommend that go to the world of birding? And tell us a little bit about your new upcoming okay. children's book. Okay, let's see if I can do all that without you. Fill our mean. shelves with some good things, Annette. Um, no more Paw Patrol, please. <laughs> please, Lord. So Maria John Ferrari has a book called, oh, 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 hopefully I can say this right. Who, 
Huku haiku, Huku kai haiku. So it's it's a book. Um, it is you know poetry and owls, but Maria John Ferrari. Um, and so that's a lot of fun. And my very favorite birding book, and I say that with kids and adults in mind. It's called Look Up: Bird Watching in Your Own Backyard, and now, my name's Annette, and that's actually how I got connected with this author, but her name is Annette LeBlanc-Kate, mm-hmm. Kate with a C, C-A-T-E, um, and it is this, it's just a feast for the eyes. It has all sorts of cool information in it, but it's also, you know, how kids love graphic novels. Well, this is a graphic designed book as well. It's paired with regular text and then these, um, you know, it's comic book style and it, it has humor. It has people in it that are sharing this information that the kids will relate to, but it also just, is just a f- book that is full of information and, um, you know, it even encourages kids to, you know, think about all the different colors, even though, yes, it might look like a little brown blob out there, but what is it? And, and if you pay attention, you can see the details and you can figure out, you know, there is a unique shape there. There is, oh, did you see that stripe? And so, so look up bird watching in your own backyard is a book that I think is a great resource for, for anyone who is a little bit curious about the birds that they see outside their window. Mm, Love it. I'll link to both of those in the show notes and I'm going to order them both because with summer, our kids are going to have more time for reading. So we got to stock our shelves with some good stuff. Uh, Oh, I'll say for for look up, get the new paperback version because Mm. it has 18 new pages that the hardcover version does not usually. So it's, it's, um, yeah. So it's just a whole, you know, pages and pages and pages of more information that didn't make it into the first round. So, Mm. And my, my deep hope, besides that my kids would love and follow Jesus and contribute to society, is that they would all become birders. So subtly, I'm just filling the bookshelves with more and more books <laughs> on birding. I'm trying to, trying to infiltrate uh, for good. You know, I'm using my yes. powers for good. Absolutely. Tell us, tell us about your devotional. When does that come out? And what is it all about? Okay, so Quirky Critter Devotions, 52 Wild Wonders for Kids, will be out March 2024, and it comes out with Tyndale House. Mm. And it is, I haven't seen the entire book and design, but I got to see the final cover today. And before I'd seen, I'd seen, I'd seen, you know, what we hoped that the cover would be. Um, But got the finalized version today, which was really exciting. And I've seen some samples of what they are doing with the interior and it is just gorgeous. So, so it's a devotional, um, with, you know, there's, uh, typically it's about seven devotions. So seven mammal devotions, seven amphibian devotions, seven fish devotions. And, you know, I, I, I share about the, I share, you know, some, some information about this species of animal. And then I, link it back to God mm. and who he is and, or maybe, you know, what, what he might say in his word about what he wants for us. Mm. And, and there's also, 
Oh, I'm, it's been a while since I looked at it, but I'm going to try to remember what else is included. There's so we such have, a long time, isn't there, between the writing and the actual holding it in your hands? And then you do these book interviews and you're like, what did I say? I don't remember. It was two years ago. <laughs> you are so, so right there. Um, so every devotion also has a wild wonder. So it's a, mm. a wow fact. Mm. And the way that, that Tyndale is designing it, these are going to be are illustrated and kind of goofy, adding some more humor there. Even though the words aren't necessarily humorous, mm. the illustration will be. Mm. And the, oh, this is also going to be mostly photo illustrated. So I love that they are bringing in the actual animals because to me, it's a devotional focusing on the amazing creation of God. So I mm. wanted photographs. I'm so grateful that th that is what they are doing. Um, but there's also... Um, some hands-on activity. There's a hands-on activity with every devotion, hmm. something, something to, for the child to do, to connect with the animal. So it might be a craft. It might be um, an activity that they do for someone or something that they can do in their kitchen. It, um, some devotions have like a special, like, get outside and try to do this. But those are, we, we didn't, we didn't want that to be the only option for an activity because not everyone has access, easy access to a stream or mm -hmm. to, to a forest or anything else. So, you or know, it's not January and they're reading it in Alaska. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so anything, so, so we tried to limit that. And then each devotion will also have a journal prompt. Mm. So there, so it, it's, it's, it's going to, I think it is going to be a good resource for kids and mm -hmm. for those who I, I can see families reading it together. And even though it's 52 wild wonders for kids, I don't say to do one a week. Um, that's I'm to me, that's totally up to the family. Um, but some might want to say, let's take this week to really focus on this one animal and do this activity this day. Let's do the journal, the, the journal entry as a family, or, you know, just the child will do that on their own. You know, they can take their time with it or they can devour it. it and it just kind of depends on the reader, I think. But I, I can also, I don't know about you, but sometimes... Sometimes when I read a devotional, I'll finish my devotion and I'll keep reading. <laughs> not that it was not that it ended on a cliffhanger, but I just want a little bit more. Yeah. And so I, I wonder if if turning that page and seeing that next photograph will entice kids to kind of want more. I don't know. Mm. But I'm I'm very excited about quirky career devotions. I'm I'm putting that on my Amazon alert list because I want to be I want to be first in line for that one and we're always looking for more tools as parents. I'm always looking for more tools as a pastor. How can we engage our kids, especially kids who maybe have a natural interest already in nature that this will connect with God or kids who are really interested in developing their faith. This will develop an interest in nature. It's a it's a wonderful wonderful tool for us to have and I'm just I'm grateful it's going to be out there in the world. So thank you. You're doing good work, Annette. Yay. Thank <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that was, um, it, it, I had the idea for something like that, like an insect devotional mm. years and years ago. And then it was like, it doesn't just need to be insects. It can just be animals. 
because doing just insects intimidated me because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a biologist. I'm not an insect expert. And so that was a little intimidating. But when I decided to kind of go broader and, you know, I, I, I've wrote about animals I had never heard of before. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, but that's, you know, letting the research lead me works Mm -hmm. sometimes. So, and when I was choosing my animals, I, I probably started with a list of hmm, maybe 70 animals. Mm -hmm. And there were some that's like, oh, that would be cool to include. But when I was researching and then trying to write I didn't want to have a, the faith, the faith connection be forced. Yeah. And because of that, some animals just didn't make the cut, at least during that writing, Mm -hmm. maybe they would make a, maybe they would be in a different devotional, but not this one. They were not Jesus' favorite. What can you say? (laughs) (laughs) They're all his favorite. It's good. Absolutely. So now we've talked a lot about children and children's mm-hmm. books, but I wonder what advice you would have for an adult who has has realized they've kind of lost that sense of curiosity and that sense of wonder. How can we recapture that? Because I think life kind of wears us down and that initial sense of interest and discovery can wane with time. How can we re- recover that holy curiosity? I don't know if this is too simple of an answer. But I really think just going outside mm. and being still in nature can do a lot for us. Mm. Um, I mean, reading books, that that is one of my favorite ways to learn. But getting hands-on, and really sometimes in nature it's not hands-on, it's really just hands-off and, and, and sit there in awe. Mm. But I think that fresh air and sunshine and being surrounded by God's creation can do a lot for us, mm-hmm. um, and it, including including restoring some of that curiosity, some of that hope that we mm-hmm. need. So, yeah, maybe that's a very simple answer, but that's that's my answer today. It might I, be a different answer tomorrow. <laughs> I think sometimes the most profound answers are the simplest answers, and there really truly is something about going outside. And if if the weather's nasty, just sitting near a window, just participating in some way in the natural world that kind of resets our rhythms a little bit. God knew what he was doing when he made most of the world outdoors. (laughs) I think you just used an important word, participating. Yeah. And, you know, we, we can, we can go for a walk and we can be in such a zone that we don't notice anything, or maybe we're on our, you know, talking on the phone or, or, you know, using our phone, looking at it instead of this world. But, you know, if we open our ears and we open our eyes, I think it opens our heart too. Mm. And, and, you know, just feeling that, whether it's that sticky air or, or that refreshing, crisp winter breeze, that's going to, you know, maybe bite a little too, but it can all, it can all help us to participate in this world. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, just to, to look up a little bit and put the phone away. And I, I have a favorite hiking trail near here. And, and recently um, I was hiking and I saw, and I've never seen a screech owl in the wild because they look like tree bark. But in the hollow of this dead tree was a, was a Western screech owl. And I was so excited. And everybody who came down the trail in the next 10 minutes, I had my binoculars. I was like, want to see an owl? Want to see an owl? And 
two thirds of them were like, no, thank you. Like I'm hiking for exercise, crazy lady. You know, there was this, I was like, are you kidding me? Like they're super rare. They're hard to find. It's right here. Take a look. And finally some hikers came through and they, they stopped with me for five minutes and they looked at the owl and you know, looked me in the eye in the end and said, that was amazing. Thank you. And it was like, I just needed to share it with someone. And I was so grateful for these two hikers who, who took the time to stop because there, there is something so holy about encountering a wild animal and being able to, you know, I, I talked to, um, Fernando Ortega on the podcast a, a few months ago, the, the songwriter. And he said, you know, there's something about those interactions with the natural world that make me feel seen by God. Hmm. And that's how I felt in that moment. And I wanted to share it with people. But it was really just a reminder of how often I don't want to look up from my phone or, you know, I'm trying to keep my heart rate up, trying to keep my steps in, trying to do the... And if we pause, the wonder is there if we look, if we if we participate. Yes, yes. That was a good word, Annette. Where can we find you and your beautiful books? Send our listeners to your library. So so you can check out any of my books at AnnetteWhipple.com. And I'm on social media too, Annette Whipple Books on Instagram and Facebook, Annette Whipple on Twitter. You're a great Twitter follow, by the way. I love, (laughs) you post such fun stuff on Twitter. You're you're one of my favorites out there. Thank you. And, um, but really I would love for folks to ask for any of my books at their local bookstore, ask at your library. Mm. Librarians might not know about me. Your bookstore might not know about me, but if you ask for it there, maybe, and, and any bookstore can get it, can get any book for you. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, you can ask there, but I, you know, you can also find them on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com as well. Mm. So, um, that's, you know, I'm, I'm around. So folks can <laughs> find me. You're findable. That is such a good author fact to know. Cause I know some people say, Oh, my book budget, you know, I've already blown it for the year and it's not even halfway through, but you can always request that your library purchase mm-hmm. the books and then you get to read them. It doesn't cost you anything. And the books get out into the wider community, which is a blessing for authors as well. It, it really is. I, and I, you know, you're a family that loves books. Our family loves books. I cannot afford to feed my kids the books that they need. Um, so I have help and it's my local library. Yeah. And we actually belong to two different library systems since we live on the Pennsylvania and Maryland state border. And so we use one library, one county library in Maryland, and we use one in our county library in Pennsylvania. And it just broadens my my books even more. And I also know that one, one of the libraries is more likely to get faith-based books than the other. Mm -hmm. So when Mm -hmm. I'm putting in those personal requests that, you know, they're not necessarily going to, you know, it's not in the system already at a different county library. Mm -hmm. I can, I can put in that request. And especially before the books even come out, it's like, oh, that book's coming out next month. I can request it. Maybe they'll get it. Hot new ticket. And it's usually really easy. You can usually do it right from your library's main website. There's usually a little request a book link. So pro tip, but I love how you put it. You can't afford to feed your kids all the books they need. That is the truth, man. (laughs) My husband's like, what? We got another package of books. I'm like, I know. I'm sorry. I have a problem, but it's a good problem to have. It is. is. And really uh, the kids, uh, kids don't love every book that you put in front of them. Yes. They really don't. Um, And not, you know, child A and child B aren't necessarily going to like the same books either. And giving them, 
20 books a week to choose from is a lot easier to do through the library instead of the, and my kids, my kids do reread their own books a lot. Yeah. Um, but sometimes we, it's also hard. Um, especially I have a 14 year old son. He Mm. seems especially tough to buy for right now. Mm. And so it's like, Oh, so if I know that he, that, Oh, that author that he likes has a book coming out or, um, you know, it's, I try to also keep adding to their collections, but I, you know, we need to eat food in addition to books. So <laughs> do we though, Annette, do we really? <laughs> That's a good word and a good plug for, for local libraries. Well, my friends, our guest today was Annette Whipple, author of Who Knew the Truth About Owls and many other beautiful nonfiction books for children. Look for her upcoming devotional, Quirky Critter Devotions, coming out with Tyndale in March of 2024. Annette, thank you so much for the gift of your time today. Oh, thank you, Courtney. Thank you for having me. This has been a blessing and a delight. Thank you. The Thing with Feathers is produced by me, Courtney Ellis. Many thanks to Del Belcher for the music, to Todd Peterson for the name inspiration, and to Emily Dickinson for the beautiful poem and for being in the public domain. Until next time, my friends, keep looking up. Your soul. Yes, it does.